Daniel, is it true that you pretended to have COVID and be sick for weeks on end just to avoid having to do a podcast with me? Well, you may very well think that, Matthew, but of course I couldn't possibly comment on such rumour mongering. That's not the job of the Adam Smith Institute. We're here to talk about the facts uh, and that's what we're, we're going to do. Well, risen from the dead, here you are. From your from your COVID-induced slumber, you are a survivor. Hallelujah. Feels good. Feels good to be back. Welcome to the Pin Factory, the Adam Smith Institute's podcast. My name is Matthew Lash. I'm the head of research at the ASI. In this week's episode, I'm joined by my returned co-host and head of programs, Daniel Pryor, and John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. In this episode, we're going to be discussing the reshuffle, COVID plans, and labour shortages. Prime Minister Boris Johnson has gone ahead with the much-anticipated cabinet reshuffle. The knives were out with major sackings, including Gavin Williamson from Education, Dominic Raab from the Foreign Office, Robert Jemnick from Housing, and Robert Buckland from Justice. Before we get on to specific changes, I'm kind of interested, to what extent do we think these reshuffles matter? Obviously, they're, they're very exciting when they happen, and Twitter lights up and we, we get every half an hour new updates to keep us busy. It's, it's a great news day. But we actually think it has much impact in terms of policy direction. Um, I, I think, I mean, there's no simple answer to that from my own days. I spent seven, eight years working in the political lobby and reshuffles were always the kind of, you know, fat kid at Christmas moment where, uh, <laughs> like you say, it's just endless updates, like who's in, who's out. And, and the theatre of them walking, actually physically having to walk down the street to be fired or... Um, or, or hired, always added a certain frisson to it. Um, I think they're primarily about kind of reconfiguring the team in the Prime Minister's own image as far as possible, and you can certainly see that with the way Boris Johnson has appointed certain people. Um, I don't think it's too sort of disparaging about any ministers to say that he values loyalty um, to himself, but all Prime Ministers do. I think um, in terms of reform, I think having Michael Gove in at what, is sort of the housing brief, what encompasses housing, might be quite exciting, um, provided he agrees with sort of our side of the analysis that we need to build lots more houses. Um, he's certainly someone who's got a track record of getting stuff done in government. He can come in and, you know, side through the vested interests and all that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's always a mixture of there'll, there'll be some reform-minded appointments and others that are more about signalling, appointing allies, demoting less loyal people and so on. So it's a, it's a mixture of those things. Um, but I think with this particular reshuffle, it's more about asserting the, the Boris Johnson's kind of primacy um, in government and, and, you know, wielding power. I think the Dean Joyce is probably a good example of a Secretary of State who's going to ruffle some feathers uh, with, you know, cultural respect. But honestly, I can't actually see her substantially changing the government's policy when it comes to digital, where the government's very much going after tech companies. They're very much limiting online free speech, where there's there's a, such a disjoint between the policies they're pursuing and the rhetoric that they 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 try to go on about. Do you think uh, politicians do much, Daniel? Are they are they all just um, yes minister style, controlled by the civil servants, and uh, they've got public pressure and priorities? You know, you would think this would be a great time for libertarians. Um, based upon some of the appointments, it doesn't really seem that way whatsoever, of course. Yeah, well, a couple of things on reshuffles in general. The first is, in a way, it is a kind of good time for libertarians simply because of what John mentioned, the kind of physical theatre of uh, of important politicians walking and, and effectively getting fired or 
or getting sacked, it's quite a nice moment to be uh, looking at politicians through a, a less kind of a more humiliating lens in a way. So that's always quite satisfying, uh, even if you like the politicians, it's always nice to see. But on the reshuffle in this particular government, I think John's completely right here. The Johnson uh, administration, as it were, is particularly centralizing in terms of wanting control over policy from number 10, more so than we've seen from many previous governments. And that's why I think even if in the past you get reshuffles actually resulting in quite significant changes in direction in some cases where a particular uh, minister is brought in. In this case, I think it's less likely to, to be true, um, simply given the amount of control that number 10 has over the entire policy making process. So I don't think we're going to see that much in the way of change. Um, if we get onto some of the specifics, I think that we can kind of delve into why that's the case in more detail though. Yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to make another point about reshuffles in general. I think that the regularity with which governments reshuffle in this country is a, is a pretty bad thing. And it means that lots of ministers just don't get enough time in the departments. You see people who've had, I mean, uh, you, you see people who've had sort of eight, nine ministerial jobs in the space of 10, 15 years in government. I mean, there's no way that you're going to get the amount of grip you need on a department if you're constantly being shuffled around. And the same thing is true about civil servants as well. People who are good get moved departments all the time, so they don't build up the kind of subject mm. um, expertise you want. So uh, one of the things I liked about the coalition government was there was relatively little of that. Um, I mean, there are many things you could criticise that government for, but they were quite <laughs> stable. I mean, you had like Michael Gover's education for quite a long time. Um, well, that was probably... and and managed to do a kind of pretty substantial amount of reform in that time with Dominic Cummings alongside him. Um, I don't suspect we'll be seeing him back in government anytime soon. Um, but yeah, I, mean, I, think, I, wish, I think it would be, it would probably be good if Cummings came back for housing. I think he's the housing. Um, oh, it'd be great fun as well. I mean, don't forget yeah. uh, He'd have no time for the NIMBYs. He'd just, he'd just say it, you know, yeah. them all. Um, I think, yeah, there's that interesting factor. I think absolutely right. DCMS is the, probably the best example of this, which is literally every single DCS minister has been um, either sacked or, or reshuffled somewhere else. For no apparently particularly good reason. I mean, it wasn't like the 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 you know the center had an issue with their, the policies they were pursuing and it's put put people in place with fundamentally different disposition. Um, they've just changed people around, apparently for the sake of changing people around. Just mm. moving on, though, to the, the what is probably the biggest reshuffle that we haven't discussed yet, um, which is Liz Truss being promoted from trade to become foreign secretary, one of the, the great officers of, of state traditionally. Um, I mean, in my head, I think that's quite clearly probably an award for the fact that Liz Truss is a, is a competent and popular minister. Um, she did quite a lot of the trade brief. Uh, Rob was demoted for his competence. But I'm interested what we think that might mean for British foreign policy. Is it um, business as usual or, or does trust represent uh, a shift in some respect? I think for me it's a shift uh, from it's actually probably an exception to what we're saying about uh, kind of reshaping the cabinet in Boris's own image and that Liz has consistently been more hawkish on China than, um, than Boris uh, and arguably than the former Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab as well and she's been quite vocal about that so I think one of the changes we might see at least uh, in kind of rhetoric from the government is a more hardline stance uh, on China more broadly. But when it comes to kind of foreign policy strategy in general, I think obviously, you know, former international trade secretary, Liz's big thing is international trade and, and free trade. And I think we're going to start seeing more kind of foreign policy rhetoric 
related to the power of, of trade when it comes to influencing our diplomacy with other countries. That's something that we didn't really see as much with, uh, mm. with Rob, and I think we like to see that come to the fore with Liz far more. Yeah, and I think it's only puts Liz in a position where she's the one of the obvious competitors to be the next leader of the Tory party, along with someone like Rishi. Just that meteoric rise and that popularity that she has in the Conhome poll as one of the most popular ministers. It seems like the most popular ministers got promotion and, and Liz was one of them, uh, and, and she benefits from that. Um, the other one, and I know you've already already mentioned this, John, something very close to the ASI's heart, but also obviously close to CapEx's heart, which is housing reform. Um, John Rick, uh, I suppose to some extent, to my surprise, got demoted because you think you'd, you'd leave John Rick in to, to kind of try to solve the planning issue. He wasn't able to solve um, the opposition on the backbenches. Gove has been put in there. I know you were kind of relatively optimistic when you said at the start that, that Gove is a fixer. When he puts his mind onto something, he mm. fixes that problem. But there is also just as much risk that Gove basically doesn't agree with our diagnosis of what the problem is um, and goes for different policy solutions. Uh, and I don't know how you, you necessarily rate, rate that as a risk, uh, John. Yeah, I have seen stuff suggesting that he agrees with um, the sort of what is known in policy wonk circles as the Ian Mulhern analysis, which is that actually there's no problem with housing supply. It's all to do with finance, to which I'd say that we don't have enough empty homes anyway, and loads of the ones we have are falling down and crap. So even if price weren't an issue, we need lots of new homes, Um, but it is. Um, So I mean, it's fair to say I, I... part company with yeah. him quite, quite some of the reason why that makes no sense whatsoever is because we would have consistent housing price increases across the country but you don't house yeah, prices yeah, exactly. go much faster in places because we have one financial setting everywhere in the country there's there's, there's one interest rate everywhere in the country um there's, yeah. there's a global credit market as well that the, the cost of money is very low that's true but it's only has any meaningful impact um, in places where there's restrained supply. So in, in London, the southeast, in Manchester, where there's heavy demand for, for yeah. where people want to live because we haven't built enough there. But the other thing is the current system is just a total waste of loads of people's time. It's a terrible, slow, bureaucratic, arbitrary way yeah. of deciding how to do things, notwithstanding the price elements. It's just, it's just crap, and we should want to reform it for its own sake and have more consistency. Um, so my hope is that he at least looks at it from that point of view and thinks we must be able to do things better. Um, but, uh, you know, even someone with it, with his sort of experience will come across a pretty, uh, you know, a uh, pretty strongly arrayed set of vested interests and they're not going to back down. Um, so, yeah, I'm sort of, se- I'd say I'm sort of semi-confident on that. I'm, I've been, we've been through too many governments saying they're going to reform housing and having not done so to be too kind of, Panglossian about it um so that's much my view on that on the foreign policy stuff that you mentioned uh or sorry to come back to the why robert jenrick left i think sometimes it's not so much that the minister in the position has done a particularly bad job or anything it's just that it's such a case of musical chairs and they've got to find spots for other ministers mm. that someone ends up being the fall guy i'm slightly surprised he didn't get a job of some sort um to just be kind of plain yeah. sat like that. But I also wouldn't be surprised if he came back to government at the next reshuffle, because I think- Yeah, especially since Jeremy was so loyal to Boris. He was one of the yeah, exactly. He doesn't kick, he's not going to kick up a fuss on the back benches, I don't think. He's not going to be one of those who's going to be a focal point for opposition. He might try and do some of his own stuff, um, you know, develop some ideas and things, but he's not going to be there going out, giving tell-all interviews to the tabs or anything like that. Um, whereas other people who've been sacked may create more of a problem for him. But again- I think there's always that incentive of possibly having another job dangled in front of you in the future to make people kind of watch their words a bit. 
Yeah. The other element as well, Dan, I don't know if you have a particularly strong view on this, is Gove has been given responsibility for a few other things. We've got the union leveling up as well as dealing with um, supply shortages. We're going to come to supply shortages a little bit later in the podcast. Do you think um, Gove is going to be able to solve and define leveling up finally and it's going to give some meaning to it? And, and I guess same with the union problem is, is Scotland about to be saved from independence or, um, you know, entrapped in the union alternatively, if, if that's your view? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm certainly, I think I'm very sad actually that Jenrick has gone from housing. That's one of the kind of moves that I'm, I'm most bummed out about. But at the same time, I think Gove is probably one of the best candidates to replace him. I think his instincts specifically on housing are, are actually pretty good. You know, when the kind of planning reforms were first proposed out there, he was complaining that campaigners against them are opposing social mobility, aspiration and the family. And he's you know said before about building on a huge chunk of the green belt. So I think his instincts on this issue, at least, are, are fairly yindi. Um, and we should be fairly optimistic about that. Now, whether he can translate that into actual policy success, because you know, famously, absolutely no one in the UK can, um, is another matter. And I think it's important that his, you know, his special advisors and the contacts he has with the people who have been campaigning in this area for several years make it clear that, you know, things like street votes might be the way to go. And actually, it's, it's you know, not so simple when it comes to reforming the UK planning system, um, simply because of the level of uh, organised opposition in this area. On his other issues um, that you mentioned, you know, levelling up as a key example, I think that Gove has this reputation, I think rightly so, from his time at the Department of Education for being able to very quickly familiarise himself with a problem um, and, and get up to speed. So I'm optimistic that at least, you know, whatever he's tasked to do, he'll be able to get abreast of the facts fairly quickly. The problem is that, if, you know, being tasked with levelling up that in itself, you can't really get abreast of the facts because it's still this kind of woolly amorphous concept and one that I know you've complained about many times on this podcast, Matthew. Um, but hopefully he can add some, some definition to it in a way that is consistent with the sort of principles that free marketers support. Um, and, you know, we, we've suggested various ways of doing that in the past, of making levelling up a more concrete concept and one that is actually focused with helping um, people who are the least well off in the UK, um, rather than this kind of, oh, we'll, we'll just build houses and places that nowhere wants to live and therefore we've leveled up kind of idea. Mm, yeah, it's, it'll, be, it'll be interesting to say if, if he can define something that has otherwise um, remained uh, incapable when it comes to progress. I think it's also interesting in terms of, you know, how things are shuffling around that this is, one could say, arguably a, a bit of a demotion for, for Gove, who was ha- hoping to be foreign secretary and a bit of a, a win for Liz Truss. And I think that's potentially because Gove was threatening Boris and, and Gove has, has higher aspirations than uh, would perhaps be appropriate, but also he's, he's quite an important um, and effective minister operator. So it's, it's kind of finding a slot for him that, that worked out. But on that note, I think we might stick into some of the other major policy issue of the week, which was the COVID winter plan. The Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, has announced an autumn and winter plan for COVID-19. The government will largely focus on vaccinations in Plan A, but if matters take a turn for the worse and the NHS comes under uh, overwhelming pressure, then they could introduce vaccine passports and face coverings in so-called Plan B. Uh, Matthew, starting with you, yourself and the ASI's senior fellow, uh, James Lawson, released a paper earlier this week on what the next steps in the fight against covid 
should be. Uh, do they chime uh, what you suggested with the government's latest announcements, so broadly on message? What do you make of the idea of Plan A and Plan B? Look, the government has, has gone ahead and, and made the, the early week about uh, COVID announcements and this, this winter plan. There's been uh, some outrage in the kind of traditional conservative circles uh, who, who think the government's gone too far. In, in with you know all all perspective, I don't think it's a particularly um, damning plan. Particularly Plan A contains a lot of the things that the ASI was calling for, which with respect to booster shots. Now they've only announced booster shots uh, and they haven't even actually started them. Uh, yet or only started them in a limited sense for the vulnerable and, and people who are older. We'd like to see booster shots eventually offered across the whole population because that helps reduce the spread. Um, they've also announced offering jabs uh, to children, which is controversial, but also something we've backed because we think that's a, a good option uh, just to increase immunity across populations, give them the opportunity to get vaccinated if they so choose. Um, and with the general goal, and this is what um, James Lawson and I were trying to achieve in that paper we had out at the start of the week, is how can we do everything we can to avoid another lockdown? Um, what was notable, the government didn't rule out a lockdown, but nor is that in this plan. Um, pl even they've got plan A, they've got plan B if cases start going up. Uh, plan B has some things that I don't particularly like, like vaccine passports um, and like making uh, face masks compulsory again, but at the same time, not too terrible in the scheme of things. It's, it's not another lockdown. You know, if the options are, uh, and I hate to hate to compromise and, and be too utilitarian about this, um, but if the option is, you know, being locked in my home or having to occasionally show my COVID status certificate in order to access a club, I'd probably go for the latter. What I don't think there was enough detail in was in a few respects um, that we've really focused on on this paper. I'd really like to see the government um, do a lot more on, which is thinking about things like next generation vaccines, vaccine updates. We haven't updated the vaccines for um, the, the, the Delta variant. Um, we could have more effective vaccines in future. What's our status when it comes to procuring those vaccines? Um, what are the government's plans to ensure vaccinations of, we estimate 2.1 million vulnerable people who haven't yet been vaccinated? Um, what are their efforts when it comes to some of the, the new treatments? There's a little bit in the plan on that, but not a lot. Um, when will they be updating their advice when it comes to face coverings to encourage people to actually wear surgical masks um, and, and respiratory masks where, if they're particularly if they're vulnerable? So there's a lot more the government could be doing um, to tackle COVID without infringing our liberties um, that I, I'd like to see them doing. John, are you with Matthew on this? Anything to avoid another lockdown, even if potentially it means things like uh, mandatory vaccine passports if things go awry? Yeah, I'm entirely on board with not having another lockdown. Um, I think that it's one of those things that um, the press loves kind of waving in people's faces because it just drives clicks to websites to claim that something dramatic is is on the horizon. And sometimes you see analysis that so there's a strange genre of COVID analysis which seems to completely forget the amount of people who are already vaccinated in this country or will have to you believe they'll write about vaccination in a way that suggests that waning efficacy is the same thing as vaccines quote not working um which i, I get that it's not you know 60 percent is worse than 80 percent or whatever but the way that it's presented sometimes is as if we're going to be back to square one within a few months um so i think i mean i think everything that's been proposed sounds fairly sensible it's also quite interesting how quickly they backtracked having threatened vaccine passports um which was I mean, let's be honest, no, a government minister would never admit it, but it was just a way of trying to cajole, not even cajole, to force younger people into getting a vaccine. I think they saw what happened in France when they introduced very draconian um, measures to do with how you can access um, even just restaurants and bars. You need a, a um, vaccine certification and 
their take up of vaccines went through the roof almost overnight. So they thought, all right, we'll have a bit of that. Um, yeah, I can yeah, imagine if it, if, it happens in, if it happens that much in France and the, the kind of Brits' love of uh, pubs and restaurants outweigh even that, and we'd actually, we'd probably get, you know, 110% vaccine take up in the statistics. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm fairly optimistic in terms of the domestic setup. The thing where I'm really quite pessimistic still is, um, is about just general international travel. I think it's going to take a really long time to get back to anything like normal i think we're going to have an update actually today and um, depending on when this podcast goes out but um we're recording on a friday and they're about to do an update which may make some european travel um a bit easier so that's that's a nice thing um the other thing i saw is that they might get rid of pcr tests for double vaccinated people um this one i'm slightly pissed off about because i went on holiday two weeks ago for three days <laughs> we went to spain and we spent 400 quid on PCRs just for me and my wife. Wow. Um, which was completely absurd because there was loads of time in between the tests where we were just milling around. Mm. So if we had had COVID, it would have made absolutely no difference to anything. But if they do get rid of that, it would be great. It would be really great for families as well because for a family of four or something, it's absolutely astronomical cost at the moment. Um, so yeah, fingers crossed for that. So on the kind of specifics of, of plan A with booster shots and, and vaccinating children, what, what is the, the case for... Uh, Matthew offering booster shots when we still have people around the world, billions of people who haven't had a single dose of vaccine. There's a kind of international aid argument here that, well, we should be prioritizing vaccine doses and, and booster shots for people that, that aren't vaccinated at all, as opposed to updating our own uh, population. Yeah. yeah, I mean, in in for the UK, the, the case for booster shots is uh, one, the growing evidence, including some, some new research out this week from Public Health England, uh, that the level of immunity, particularly from antibodies, goes down, but even the protection from hospitalisation death um, is declining, particularly for people who had their vaccine at, at the early in the year. Um, so there's just a lot more people who are vulnerable um, to potential death uh, as time goes on. And if you don't get the boosters, we've also got this, this emerging evidence, particularly out of Israel, that people who have booster shots are far less likely to get severe, severe illness. Um, hospitalization deaths. So we know the booster shots work and we know immunity is waning. So the booster shots are necessary. I, I think that's that's abundantly clear. The moral question about um, should we be prioritizing providing back vaccines to other parts of the world? I think you could probably make a decent argument for that, but only in the relative short term. There are actually quite substantial supplies of vaccines on the horizon um, from various companies. This, this is very much a short-term issue. So we've got uh, some like 2 billion vaccines coming this year in five total from Pfizer, a billion from Moderna, a couple billion from uh, AstraZeneca. And then there's a number of other companies as well that are uh, providing vaccines. So th th there's going to be enough vaccines to vaccinate the world uh, very shortly. And then we're going to have more vaccines and then we're going to provide boosters. Um, there is probably an argument for donating a large amount of vaccines to wherever is having large outbreaks, and particularly if they have vulnerable populations. A lot of parts of the developing world haven't actually had COVID anywhere near as bad because the life expectancy in these countries is a lot less, the average population is a lot less, so there's just a lot less vulnerable people who could die from COVID. Um, all those places in the world that have been vaccinated uh, but don't have very much COVID, some like China has a bit of COVID but doesn't have a substantial amount circulating. So it's not abundantly clear that... Um, the moral case is always 100%. We have to give up our doses with someone else, but it, there's definitely a balance to be struck um, in terms of ensuring that there's proper global access. And I think that is a, a good moral case for that. Yeah, I, I wonder about the kind of political realities, even if we were to accept, say, that moral case, for example, if you look at general polling around something like international aid in general, I can't imagine the 
general public having a particularly good reaction if we were to okay we're giving away uh, we're not actually doing a booster shot program as as aggressively as we otherwise would because we're giving them away to uh, to less well-off countries i don't think that would land particularly well in the polling and given what we discussed in the previous section about well it seems like uh, the new ministers are appointed on the basis of how popular they are we, this government isn't necessarily going for uh, for pragmatic approaches as opposed to populist approaches but i think they're kind of the the question we haven't looked at here so far, let's say, you know, we, we go for plan A and we, we start doing booster shots, we start vaccinating children, uh, and it looks like the NHS is going to get overwhelmed in winter. And we have a similar sort of situation we had during the, the very worst days um, of the COVID pandemic in the UK. Um, so we go and try mandatory face coverings in public places, potentially, or um, we try vaccine passports, and that still doesn't work. And actually, we end up uh, screwed over again, perhaps a I know, a new variant emerges or, or whatnot. Do you think that there is a kind of secret plan C for uh, actually lockdowns are potentially on the horizon or on the cards? Because we, we have heard kind of, you know, talk about firebreak lockdown potentially in, in certain areas of the UK as, as a possibility. Are, are you worried at all uh, about this, John? Or do you think that, that we, we really are over the worst when it comes to lockdowns now? Uh, I can't, I think I'm just sort of mentally hedging against it so much that um, <laughs> um, I don't know, I'm not, I, mean, I look at the kind of the charts, the hospitalizations and deaths and things, I, I guess there's always that problem of looking things at things now in the next few weeks or something and trying to project out to the future, but I just can't square the rate of vaccination we have in this country and the degree of protection with the idea that we're going to have another massive influx of people into hospital particularly if they do get on with the booster program and I think that I mean from what I've read uh, with the usual I'm not an epidemiologist caveats um, as long as they get on with that and especially for older people who are among the first to get vaccinated in the first place um, then yeah hopefully we won't have any any need for any any more lockdowns I think that I just don't think we the economy can really take it anymore we're we've had such an enormous um, blow. I, I think people have sort of forgotten about that in a weird way. They've forgotten we sent half a trillion quid or something in the last year or so on furlough and all the other stuff. Uh, it was um, only half a trillion quid. Yeah, half a trillion. I, I really, I'm genuinely worried about the way that people now approach. Um, it's probably something you guys have discussed on here before, but the, it's completely shifted the way people think about public spending. They just think, oh, because we could afford this and this, these extraordinary circumstances. Now, just any a few billion here or there. The, ma like the magic nothing. money tree has arrived. But exactly, yeah. It's a, it's a sort of dream. It's like Corbynism without Corbyn. Yeah. I mean, I share your analysis as, as my kind of central scenario, John, that uh, everything will work out and there won't be overwhelmed hospitals and, and there won't be mass lockdowns. But I can see a scenario in the back of my mind where there's a bit of an increase in COVID over the winter months, as you normally expect respiratory viruses to, to increase in their spread, combined with kind of some level of waning community immunity. And on top of that, the usual winter pressures on, on the NHS, which is always mm. in a winter crisis. You should never forget just the flu alone, it, it puts the, the NHS in the winter crisis. We know that the flu circulated a lot less last year um, because of, of lockdowns. Uh, there's, a, there's a serious risk that you've got a lot of built up um, lack of immunity to the flu. Obviously, they're expanding flu vaccines, but not um, entirely across the population. And you end up in a scenario in a couple of months' time, maybe early winter or even, even a little bit into winter, maybe even January or February, where it does actually seriously look like 
there is a political risk to the government of overwhelmed hospitals. And then they pull the handbrake and say, unfortunately, now we have to do X, Y, Z. Whether that would be a full lockdown or whether that would be, I don't know, shutting down large events or something along those lines or changing the advice, I'm not completely certain, but I can see that scenario. But here's, here's, the, here's the good line. If the government listens to the ASI um, and throws the book at avoiding that scenario, for example, one of our recommendations is providing the flu shot not just to vulnerable people and not just to, to older people, but actually to everyone, just to reduce the spread of flu around the community in the same way you want to reduce COVID spread. Maybe we can reduce the pressures, um, build the resilience we need and avoid entering another lockdown. Yeah, there's a certain irony in people, you know, with, when it comes to COVID joking about, oh, we don't lock down every year for winter flu. But that sort of worry that you have, Matthew, is kind of that. It's kind of saying, well, you know, we are going to have to lock down basically because of winter flu. Um, we've, and- we've set the precedent now. We've set the precedent that we're willing to lock down society to save the NHS. And that's a very dangerous precedent. Yeah, it is. But uh, fingers crossed that everything will continue to, to be awesome and that won't happen um, because the government, as in their wisdom, will listen to the good word of the ASI and other allied groups. Uh, but moving on to our final section of the podcast, and I'm afraid I haven't got a patented Matt Lesh segue for this one, so we're just going to go straight into it. <laughs> we're going to be discussing the uh, prominent labour shortages both in the UK and around the world. The ONS reported this week that job vacancies have reached the highest levels since 2001 when records began, with particularly the hospitality and logistics sectors facing the severest labour shortages. Let's just have a quick chat about what we think is going on in the economy with respect to labour shortages and and that that squeeze that's going on. Um, John, what have you seen? Well, I think it's quite sector specific. So one of the most, um, the ones that's been in the headlines a lot is about Um, HGV drivers and a lot of people your usual sort of FBP partisans would like to pin everything on Brexit and say there's been this big exodus of European workers and as with most things to do with Brexit and disruption Brexit is an element of it but it doesn't tell you the whole story because you've seen lots of the similar similar shortages in countries that are still in the EU so it's obviously not just Brexit Um, it's pretty hard to know how the labour shortage in Alabama has much to do with Brexit. Right, exactly. And it's I'm been, sure a, it does it's been somehow. A, a burning thing in America for a long time that they're running out of hauliers because the job is just so thankless. Um, and there's so many options for people now. You know, it's easy. Whereas 30 years ago, you couldn't just go online and see pretty much any job anywhere near you really, really easily. Now that it's just, you know, you've got so much comp- more competition for um, you know, for, for people's labour. Um, but yeah, I was reading a really, there was a really interesting piece, which was actually written by a trucker who'd joined the industry in the 80s. And he said when he joined, it was almost a romantic thing. You could go off and see the world, get paid pretty well, have a good laugh, and you had a bit of a community. Since when, the job has become progressively more boring, um, but also worse paid, and also much more closely monitored by the companies themselves so there's sort of my uh, cameras in the cabin and stuff like that which just makes it you know makes an already tricky job i mean operating an enormous bit of machinery um even more you know slightly soul destroying but without and without any of the financial payoff that they used to be so it's not really it's pretty basic stuff it's not an attractive industry for a lot of people to work in a lot of the drivers who are older are now retiring and they're not being replaced so you could kind of there's a stopgap for a while with eastern european workers who for whom those wages were much higher than they could expect at home 
Um, but that too started to level off a lot of those countries when they joined the EU had much lower wages than they do now. So the domestic, the difference between working in the UK and working at home is much lower. Um, but that would have been the case regardless of Brexit uh, as well. So, I mean, that's just to talk about one industry, but it's just an example of how lots of different factors play in even just to that, that one industry. Um, and then there's things like furlough, there's people still on furlough. Um, there's... Uh, you know, just the, the difficult in agriculture is another one where there's lots of labor shortages. There, I think you could say that, that migration is more of an issue because it was so reliant on foreign workers. I would dearly like the government to revisit their immigration policy and just make it much simpler. Personally, my ideal system would just be if you've got a job, you can come in. That'll be it. Uh, none of this salary cap nonsense, none of that. It's, it's just ridiculous. And you can see, uh, you know, the effects of it already. Um, so that, that's my sort of two cents on the on the labour shortage uh, causes. Yeah, I think the the HGV driver example is interesting because they're kind of very basic go to analysis from someone who's traditionally a fan of the EU or indeed of of migration in general seems to be well, this is all the result of, of Brexit, uh, and that it's certainly true that you've seen a lot of. Um, EU workers returning home, but that's as much, if not far more, to do to do with COVID than it is to do with Brexit itself. I think a lot of people kind of assume that, well, the main reason why all of these uh, EU workers have returned home is just because you know Brexit, Britain, etc. And that's just not the case. Uh, and it does ignore, and you, you've highlighted a few of them, John, some of the the sector specific issues with uh, with heavy goods vehicle drivers, the average age of uh, truck driver being fifty five, lots of drivers retiring uh the work the pay the conditions being pretty crap um and more broadly it's just not something that's happening in the uk so i struggle to see a kind of particularly strong case for saying well migration or, or Brexit is the main cause for for this sort of sector but as you say when it comes to things like agriculture or, or hospitality and stuff it, it certainly is more of a major issue and i, I think even with say that the hdv driver um, shortage. You still have migration as a potential stopgap whilst we focus on some of the underlying issues with the industry and, and that stopgap is being prevented. So we do have this like acute temporary labour shortage whilst we, we deal with those sort of issues and, and migration could have been a response but isn't going to be um, partially due to changes in migration policy. There's also, a, when it comes to HUV drivers, there's also actually a big regulatory story as well that there's, there's a lot of um, increased regulations over the last um, couple of decades that really put a lot of pressure and are actually causing a lot of the retirements. You've got things like um, max driving hours, you've got annual medical tests for people over the age of 45, you've got 35 hours of retraining every five years, license renewal every five years or every year for over 65, restrictions on lorry sizes and, and loads, restrictions on speed limits, um, as well as kind of innovation being blocked. So you, you pile on a huge regulatory red tape burden, particularly on the individuals who do it, they leave the industry. And then you combine that with the fact that for some bizarre reason, they haven't put HGV drivers on the shortage occupation list, which will make it a little bit easier to get them, get them over from, from the EU and you end up in the shortage position. Not something that's immediately solvable, um, as well as the fact that um, uh, the, the huge backlog when it comes to the tests there's just been a lot fewer test opportunities. So if you've got to do tests, you can't train people if the government's not providing the tests for, for the drivers. So there's a whole bunch of things going on in that particular industry that are, that are quite interesting. Um, is, is there a broader labour crunch? Well, 
I know those issues aren't going to explain what's happening in the US. I think there's another global factor here, which is we've just done these huge um, programs in the UK's case, furlough in the US case, they had very generous unemployment assistance for an extended period of time. And that's kind of to some extent made people um, step back and realize they're in no hurry to work because they might have additional savings if they were lucky enough to be in that kind of position where they weren't spending for a long time. Um, rents have gone down in a whole bunch of places. And now um, here they are, with, uh, just the knowledge that, well, they had that shitty job before that they didn't really enjoy very much and I'd just like to do something else. And they were, they were in no rush to go back to that, that hospitality job that, again, a bit thankless, not highly paid. So there's just going to have to be that issue that, I don't know, to some extent, you're going to have to increase wages to attract people back. You don't just, then you get end up with this risk. I think this is the, the next thing to think about, which is um, the inflation risk that we're going to have out of this is you got shortages where all of increased value, but if we're not necessarily more productive, you know, if we were automating HGV drivers or most of their role or something, maybe we could be more productive. We're not getting more productive. Um, so you're just going to end up putting it in quite substantial inflationary pressures combined with the, the supply chain issues that are already going on. Um, is that a recipe for disaster, John? Uh, I mean, I'm always, uh, I don't like to overuse the word disaster, but it's certainly, you know, a recipe for problems i think you could say i think there's also it's also it's easy to be kind of glib about the solution and say oh well you know we'll just have to invest more in automation and that'll be fine but you know in for, for um when you were talking about agriculture before it's not so easy to just stick a robot in a field and hope for the best um these kind of things cost an enormous amount of money and lots of firms don't necessarily have that and you also come back to again talking about something that's very sector specific um, picking fruit, veg, flowers, whatever it be, only covers a, a short period of the year. So if you were to automate, what are you going to do with that equipment for the rest of the year? You're then going to kind of ship it to another country. I mean, maybe maybe that is the answer. I don't know, but I just I'm I'm wary of thinking that there are simple fixes to some of the issues that you um, that you just mentioned. Um, and as you said, it's it's really a kind of uh, a global problem. I th I've read a lot of pieces from, we do a lot on CapEx, we do a lot of aggregating of American sources. And one thing that keeps coming up is this, what you basically describe, Matt, is the great resignation. I think millions of Americans have quit their jobs during the last 18 months, um, far more than would normally be the case because of that thing. They've seen, you know, a different lifestyle is available. Um, I'd be interested to look at the data from the UK. My, my impression just from my own sort of circle and, just the news here is that that hasn't happened in the same way here. Yeah, it's probably because we structured reason. furlough differently. So for, yeah. in order to continue getting the cash, you have to maintain the job. Uh, right, the US, yeah. You, you yeah. Got the it wasn't just a handout from the government in the same way. You didn't just get a check. I also, I think America's labor market's always been a bit more, has historically at least been quite different to ours in the sense that people are much more willing to move quite large distances for work. Um, Obviously, it's a much bigger country as well. So, you know, different industries will be in um, in different places which require you to move rather than just commuting or whatever. Um, but it's just interesting to look at those two, you know, other economies. Often we're a bit insular in the way that we discuss policies, which is, again, coming back to the way that everyone blames everything on Brexit. Well, a lot of the times the problems we're talking about, you'll find an analogous problems in, in similar Western developed economies. Just to add to that, I, with America, I think it's not just a case of greater willingness to move, but greater capability to move when it comes to comparing our, our planning systems. And I love bringing things back to housing, but there was a good uh, a, a good piece from um, from former ASIers, uh, Ben South of Sam Bowman in their Works in Progress uh, online magazine recently called the, the Housing Theory of Everything. And I think if we if we look at 
the kind of ways that the UK's playing system hamstrings people's ability to move to places where there are the jobs or they are most productive or that they are able to match up their skills with vacancies on record. You have to consider it when talking about any sort of labour shortages. It makes the labour market far less flexible and, and makes people far less able to actually respond to the sort of changing circumstances we've seen during COVID. So, it, that you know, again, it's, it's the key to solving everything. It's the key to to helping young people get on the housing ladder, but it might also be the key uh, planning reform to solving some of our labour shortage problems. And there was another essay actually um, in the same issue of Works in Progress by um, a guy called Jeremy Driver, who's talking about another related issue, which is natalism and how the, the lack of the low replacement birth rate, and it feeds into things about labour shortage. We simply have you know, a smaller population than we otherwise would have. Um, and, and housing is a massive problem, a part of that. I mean, a lot of people just simply cannot afford to have more than one or two kids because the space isn't there, particularly in London and the southeast. Um, and it, but it also ties in with a kind of there's this sort of degrowth movement and part of which is a kind of anti-population um, movement, which I think is one of the most kind of pernicious ideologies out there. It claims that kind of human beings are the problem. We need to depopulate. We need to having a kid makes you is basically ecocide. This kind of bollocks, and you hear it from oh, I, Jason Hickel and people like that. Um, whenever I hear someone making the argument against having kids and and humanity, I usually just think they're very depressed people who have a have a tendency towards just hating everyone else. Funny enough, the 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 article I enjoyed most from the current edition of Works in Progress. This is a real sale about <laughs> yeah, was, was, was the one about how we're about to get pills for weight loss that could help you lose between fifteen and twenty percent. Oh, of no. your weight and i thought yes that is the kind of progress that i am looking for for humanity and there's some quite extraordinary progress being made in that in that piece and i should um uh, it was an, an excellent piece by stephen j um uh guys hopefully i'm saying that that name right um the future of weight loss which i can also strongly recommend uh, and there's also tom shivers in there on uh why not really to worry about asteroids and a few <laughs> other things we, 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 none of us work for this publication <laughs> we have nothing to do with this. it this is pro bono <laughs> we'll be sending them the bill later for all this all this promotion <laughs> Well, well, on that note of, of friendly promotion, uh, thank you very much for joining us for this edition of The PN Factor. You've been listening to me, Matthew Lesh, Head of Research at the ASI, uh, my colleague, Daniel Pry, who is our Head of Programs, and the great John Ashmore, uh, good friend of the podcast, uh, who is uh, the editor of CapEx. Uh, if you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate and review us on your chosen podcast provider and tune in next week for more banter analysis. Mm-hmm.